last week, Sunday, after church, Michelle, myself, and my brother Greg were coming to the end of a 25-kilometer bicycle ride. We were coming, driving along, uh, biking along Fraser Highway, coming to 148th intersection, and just as Michelle crossed the pedestrian line into the intersection, a car that was in the left lane decided to jolt out suddenly in front of her and make the left turn. She hammered on her brakes, flew over the handlebars, and landed with a crash on the pavement below, um, injuring herself quite seriously in the middle of the intersection. The car that cut in front of her proceeded to go down 148th south. A car honking chased it. It later did come back. Because Michelle was going unconscious, we called the ambulance. Um, and to make a very long story short, we spent the rest of that afternoon and the evening in the ambulance. Now, she is here with us today, and um, she is going to be perfectly fine, despite nurturing a very injured shoulder for goodness knows how long. But I share this story because a thought occurred to me again after this incident that has occurred to me several times in my married life. And that is that if Michelle dies, if Michelle passes, if that tragedy were to befall our family, I would be in serious, serious trouble. Not only because I love her, not only because I like her, but in a more kind of mundane way, but nonetheless significant, Michelle does all of our banking and all of our financing and knows all of our passwords. And I don't know any of them. And I don't know where she's written them down. It's something I'm going to ask after the service today, by the way, love. But it's vital information to have, or I'm going to be in trouble. I need that information if I'm not going to suffer a lot if she were to pass. Now, I think, I believe that it is precisely within this spirit that somebody within this body of Christ asks the following question this morning, or juicy question. What is the mark of the beast? What is the mark of the beast that we find written about in the book of Revelation? According to Revelation itself, this is vital information that if we don't have, we could find ourselves in big, big trouble. Why do I say that? Well, because of Revelation 14, 9 through 11. If anyone worships the beast in its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest, day or night, for those who worship the beast in its image or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. It's vital information. We're going to be in trouble if we don't avoid this mark, whatever this mark is. But that only redoubles the question, doesn't it? Because what, after all, is this mark? It's troubled Christians for a long time. Throughout history, I've heard many suggestions about what this mark of the beast might be. Perhaps you've heard of some of them too. In recent times, some have suggested that the mark of the beast that you're going to get on your hand is a little microchip. It's going to go under the skin, and it's going to allow the government to track you, and it's going to enable them to afflict economic persecution on you, and perhaps more than that. I have also heard um, that some people think that the mark of the beast is actually being identified somehow with the papacy, 
with Roman Catholicism because some have thought that the Pope is the Antichrist. I don't believe that at all. I heard that when I was 19. It really freaked me out. I was at a conference. Someone said the Pope is the Antichrist and that the mark of the beast is related, therefore, to the papacy. I don't think that's right, but... Another suggestion that I heard most recently, and perhaps some of you have heard this as well, is that the mark of the beast is actually, it has to do with Bill Gates today working on a vaccine and also working on a tracking device that if you're going to get a vaccine for COVID-19, this is a relevant question, if you're going to get a vaccine for COVID-19, they're also going to make you get a tracking device that will or will not enable you to travel, for example and maybe engage in other economic transactions. So the mark of the beast is Bill Gates' vaccine that he's working on in conjunction with the World Health Organization, the WHO, and some kind of... Is that what the mark of the beast is? Well, I don't want to be dismissive this morning. What I would rather do is to take a look at the passage where this concept and language of the mark of the beast first arrives in Scripture, where we're introduced to this idea of a mark of the beast and the number of its name and these other sorts of things, which draws us today to look at Revelation chapter 13, verse 11 through 18. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to your Bibles there. And if you don't, that you would uh, listen along, that would be fine too. We're going to be introduced to a beast in this text that comes up out of the earth. It is the third of three beasts that in this section of the book of Revelation, by the way, it's Revelation, not Revelations. It is an apocalypse, not apocalypses. Just a little pet peeve of mine. Three beasts within this section of Revelation. We are introduced to a dragon, chapter 12. We're introduced to a beast that the dragon summons up out of the sea. That's 13, 1 through 10. And then in our text, we're introduced to another beast that's summoned up out of the earth, here in 11 through 18. So beloved, listen to God's word, and then we'll get into this idea of the mark of the beast. Then I saw, says John, as he's having a visionary experience, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns. Horns are an image of power. Horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose fatal wound had been healed. And he performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to earth in full view of men. Because of the signs he was given power to do on behalf of the first beast, he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. He ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast who is wounded by the sword and yet lived. He was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast so that it would speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. He also forced everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark. There's the economic persecution. So no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast, for it is man's number, 
His number is 666. (laughs) The word of the Lord. I'm laughing because if anyone has insight, it is a a, um, if statement. And Lord, please give me... Please give me insight. My watch is telling me that an abnormal heart rate has just been detected. I kid you not. It's, it's beeping at me. I'm going to take it off. I hope that's not true. If anyone has insight, uh, he will figure out what this mark of the beast is. Lord, indeed, please give me insight. Um, great insight. I think what's really helpful is we approach this idea of the mark of the beast to just get some orienting data points from the book of Revelation as we move our way in. So I want to move from big to small. I want to kind of funnel our way into this idea of the mark of the beast because I think the meaning will, in fact, contextually unpack itself for us. So three bits of orienting data. First bit, the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is fundamental that we understand, friends, that the purpose, the great purpose of the book of Revelation is not to give us a detailed blueprint of the future. Rather, the central purpose of the apocalypse is pastoral. It's a pastoral document. It is written by John the pastor to a group of struggling, fledgling early churches who are being tempted to abandon their faithfulness to Jesus and or are being persecuted and therefore tempted to abandon their faithfulness to Jesus. The book of Revelation, in other words, is a discipleship manifesto. Key to understanding this book is chapters 2 and 3. After you have this grand and glorious vision of the one who is like the Son of Man, Jesus Christ himself, in chapter 1, you get seven letters to the seven churches where Jesus speaks through John to seven churches and he says, in essence, You are hurting, you are struggling, or you're not being faithful. Be faithful to me. He's come to strengthen them and fortify them so that they will overcome. It's a pastoral document. He wants them to remain faithful to himself. And the way that revelation communicates this message is in accord with the apocalyptic genre according to the literary conventions of the apocalyptic genre. And put very, very simply, this is to say that it wants to communicate the significance of earthly events or earthly figures from the perspective of heaven. So John wants to pull back the cover on various truths and show us what earthly events or people look like from a heavenly perspective so that we will be fortified in the faith, so that we will look at this world with the eyes of Christ himself. That's the first piece of orienting data. The whole thing is written to fortify a struggling church or the struggling churches in Asia Minor. Here's the second bit. Our passage, the larger section of which it is a part, John wants to pull back the covers on a specific truth so the believers will be fortified. The truth about two institutions in their day that they would have been very familiar with, that were common to them, and that they may not have thought were a danger to their faith. In the first instance, the dominant political system. 
John wants to pull back the covers on the dominant political system in his day, which is to say, the state, Caesar's Rome. And then also, he wants to pull back the covers on the dominant religious system of the day. We might call it the state-sponsored church, of which, as John shows in the seven letters, the church of Jesus can become entangled with by starting to promote things or allow for things in the church that the state-sponsored church would also promote itself. Okay? So John wants to pull back the truth on the dominant political system, the state, and the dominant religious system, let's just call it the church. What truth does he want to pull back the covers on? What does he want to show them? In a word, that they can be dangerous to the church. That they can threaten the life and the faith and the vitality of the church of Jesus. Why is that true? In a word again, as John will show in 12 through 13, Because the dominant political system, friends, the state, as well as the dominant religious system, the church at large, can become dragon-inspired. Which is to say, it can become demonically inspired. John shows this. In chapter 12, the ancient dragon who is the serpent is tossed down from heaven. He who would love to be the almighty God himself is tossed down from heaven to earth. He's lost the battle. It's because of the incarnation of Jesus in that passage. And he is teetotally ticked off. He's enraged and he wants to hurt God, but he can't get to God. So the way to hurt a parent is to go after their children if you can. And that's exactly what the dragon, we are told, wants to do. He wants to wage war against the faithful followers of Jesus, those who abide to the testimony of Jesus and in obedience to his name. This is the dragon's goal in life, to ruin the church, to ruin believers. How is he going to do that? What are some of his modus operandi, his methods? John shows us here one of the ways that he was doing it there and succeeding is by inspiring the state and then inspiring the religious, dominant religious establishment to do his dirty deeds. And at the center of it, I can't go into an explanation of all the texts, at the center of it, the state in John's day, according to John from this heavenly perspective, okay, had become a parody of Jesus Christ of the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why if you look at 13, 1 through 10, you'll see that this beast is covered with blasphemous names. It claims, the state claims divinity for itself. It has been killed with a sword and yet lived. It's a parody of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And what it wants more than anything else is what Jesus, as we sang, is the only one who's worthy of. Is he worthy of our worship? Yes, he is. And the state says, no, it's not he who is worthy. It is we, the state, who are worthy. And what it wants above all is to gain, to earn, to get the worship of the world's people, the inhabitants of the earth, including, if possible, those who follow Jesus. The dominant religious system inspired by the dragon, demonically inspired. Its chief aim, as we see in our text, 
is not, interestingly, to get the inhabitants of the world and the church to worship itself, but in John's day, their function was to get the inhabitants of the world to worship the state through sacrifices, emperor worship, and other deeds that many Christians would have begun to say aren't that bad. I mean, you don't believe it. So if you offer a sacrifice to Caesar, what's the big deal? They would then begin to align themselves with state-sponsored religion. And that was its goal, is to get us to worship something that is not Christ, to shift our allegiance, to shift our trust, and their trust, of course, to Rome, rather than to Jesus Christ as Lord. Okay, so that was the goal. Now, what were the tactics of the false religion? Let's just call it false religion. To get us to shift our allegiance to something, the state, or more generally, something that is not Jesus. And to begin worshiping that. To begin putting our trust in that. Well, John shows us in our text that there are essentially four tactics that this earth beast used to try and get the believers to slide away from Christ and begin engaging in idolatrous worship, essentially. First, costuming. The devil wears Prada. A movie recently has said for us, and John says, well, the devil wears indeed religious garb. The devil masquerades as an angel of light. Notice the description we have at the beginning of our text. This earth beast looks like a lamb. It seems to represent the power of the lamb like a true prophet of God would, like a true church of God would, but it speaks like a dragon. The way to detect a false religion and one that's going to lead you astray is not so much to look at how beautiful its church buildings are or how well-dressed its pastors are or how good it looks or how accepted to society, but rather whether or not it speaks the words of Jesus and reflects the truth of Scripture. The first tactic of demonically inspired religion, of dragon-inspired religion, is costuming. To look good, even though it conceals poison at its core. The second tactic, according to John, is just good old-fashioned plain bribery. Giving the people what they want rather than what they need. Jesus and John's gospel, this is a bona fide theme in the fourth gospel. Jesus as we know, performs miraculous deeds. They're called signs. And he heals people. He walks on water. He turns water into wine. A sub-theme in the fourth gospel is that when people come to Jesus demanding that he perform signs, he refuses. He won't do it. He He won't engage in magic tricks so people believe in him. Because Jesus has come to give people what they want rather than what Sorry, that's the wrong way of saying it. You're supposed to say, wait, Jesus has come to give people what they need, not what they want. He's come to give himself, not magic tricks. They want the miracles instead of the man. Jesus wants to give them man so that they might be reconciled to God. False religion, on the other hand, friends, will give people what they want rather than, according to Scripture, what they need. As John writes in verse 13, And it, the beast, performed miraculous signs, great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. 
It's deceiving them. The third method that the devil uses is propaganda. As it's giving people what they want rather than what they need, it feeds them a steady diet of propaganda. Verses 14 and 15. The second beast sets up an image in honor of the first beast. False religion props up a picture of the blaspheming leader or government or ungodly government conviction and says, here is truth. Follow it. And further, here is something to honor and elevate. It's the pastors and priests all over Asia Minor calling people to venerate and offer sacrifices in the name of the wicked Emperor Nero as to a god, which was happening. It's the pastors and priests in Germany succumbing to Hitler's lies to the point of saluting, giving the salute, and encouraging Christians to salute that megalomaniacal and demonically inspired man. It's pastors and priests in our own day, either explicitly or implicitly, telling their congregants to put their hope for the future in the state or in an upcoming election, and allowing a fanatical spirit to develop rather than reminding their parishioners that Jesus alone is Lord and sovereign over this world and alone worthy of our trust, ultimate trust and allegiance. False religion engages in propaganda that gives strength to an idolatrous state. And the final tactic that dragon-inspired religion will use is fear. It's verses 15 through 17. Worship the image of the Caesar. The religious authorities would remind citizens in ancient Rome and participate in the sacrifices that we demand you participate in even if you have to undercut your allegiance to Jesus and that you should sacrifice to him alone. And then, and here we come, come forward with the mark of the beast either on your forehead or right hand, the religious authorities added, or face economic persecution, the inability to buy or sell in the marketplace. In short, do what we tell you. Be afraid. Otherwise, you will pay for it. Okay. So that's the orienting context. Now, finally, oriented as we are, what is this mark of the beast on the forehead, on the hand? What is this referring to? Is it a literal mark, a microchip? Well, I believe, beloved, that within context now, the answer is rather simple and has actually been given to us. The mark of the beast is the mark of having succumbed to the tactics of false religion of having been sucked in. Which is to say, the mark of the beast is a mark of belonging to the beast. Being one of its own, showing your allegiance to it by doing what it asks of you and expects of you. Which again, for our earliest brothers and sisters in the faith, which meant for them in practical terms, being marked by certain sorts of ideas, the right ones according to the state, and behaviors in public by doing things like this, engaging in emperor worship, engaging in sacrifices to the emperor, engaging in food sacrifice to idols, engaging in cult-related sexual immorality, all themes that you can find in the book of Revelation. In short, to have the mark of the beast is to think the right thoughts, forehead, and do the right deeds with your dominant hand, your right hand. Why is it the right hand? You looked at that that the state expected you to do as a mark of your total allegiance to the state before anything else. And the role of the state-sponsored or politically correct church 
was watching, monitoring to make sure that you did it. To have the mark of the beast, therefore, was simply to be one of the idolatrous state's own instead of reserving yourself for allegiance to and worship of the true God alone, Jesus the Father in spirit, in thought and deed. And the pressure, the pressure to conform or else, thus, to go back to Bill Gates, if the state today would demand you get a vaccine and a tracking device for the purpose, not of your safety, or the safety of society, but as your way of saying, of indicating, essentially, that the state is divine, and it has your total allegiance, then that would be the mark of the beast, because it would show you belong more to the state than to Jesus. Let me offer just a few elements of evidence or demonstration for this interpretation of the mark of the beast. First, the idea of being marked on the forehead is elsewhere in Revelation clearly figural. It's symbolic, not literal. In Revelation 14, immediately after we hear about the mark of the beast on the forehead, we're told that John looks and sees 144,000 of the redeemed, who, verse 4, did not defile themselves with women, in other words, engage in sexual immorality sanctioned by the state, nor was any lie found in their mouths. In other words, they refused to say Caesar is Lord, either with their mouths or with their actions. And who, as a result, verse 1, notice, have the name of Jesus and the name of the Father written on their foreheads. Clearly, we are not talking about a literal writing here. We're talking about belonging. That these saints here have been identified by God to belong to him because they honor him with their thoughts and deeds above all, no matter what it costs them. Second, Revelation, 2, Revelation 7 makes the same point when it talks about how the redeemed of the Lord receive, quote, the seal of the living God. The seal. A seal in those days was like an imprint as found on the king's insignia ring that would be heated up, placed on wax, on an envelope, to authenticate that letter as coming from the king. It had his seal, his imprint, his stamp. To say that the 144,000 were sealed with the seal of the living God then is to say that they have the imprint the stamp of God on them. Revelation 9 tells us where the seal was placed. Placed on their foreheads. Again, as with the writing of the names of God on their foreheads, to mark, the, to mark on the forehead is a symbol of belonging. You're marked out as gods, not as the beasts. Third, John's descriptions at the end of our text of what the mark of the beast is. Notice he gives us a definition they coincide exactly with this idea of belonging and demonstrated allegiance. The mark of the beast, we are told in verses 17 through 18, is two things. It's the name of the beast. Somehow you're branded with the name of the beast. And the number of its name, which is man's number, the number 666, that infamous 666. Now look. What's going on? Well, someone's name in biblical faith above all stands in for that person as a whole. Their name represents them. To be marked with someone's name then means to belong to them. 
Even as today we give our children our last name to mark them out as our own, there are the Gerber kids. They possess my last name. We mark them out to identify belonging. To be marked with the beast's name then is to belong to the beast. To be one of the beast's own and show it again by how you think and what you do. In Hitler's day, for example, it was to proudly call yourself a Nazi, even though we now know to identify with that regime, and Hitler himself, was to identify with something demonic, seriously demonic, a regime founded on lies and murder, and the devil was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, says Jesus. And then what does it mean to be marked out with man's number, the number 666? Well, I cannot get into all of the ink and the literature that has been spilled discussing what these numbers might mean. So allow me just to give the simplest and actually to me the totally most plausible explanation of this number. Numbers in Scripture have symbolic functions. The number seven, which is used profusely throughout the entire uh, book of the Apocalypse of the Revelation, is a number that connotes perfection, completion, Wholeness, in fact, it is a divine number. The number six in the Jehannine corpus, so the Gospel of John as well as in Revelation, is very much portrayed as an imperfect number. Jesus is crucified on the sixth day. The woman who comes to him at the well had six husbands before she meets the seventh who is Jesus himself. And I could go on and on proffering illustrations of this. The, the um, dominant, the, the sea beast who represents the false politics or the false state is said to rule for 42 months. What's that a fraction of? Six parts of seven. Six parts of seven. So there's the number six there. It's an image of imperfection. But the interesting thing is, is that the beast, both of them, and the dragon himself, feign perfection. They try to take on themselves divinity itself. This is why when you look at the descriptions of the dragon in chapter 12, you'll see that he adorns himself in sevens. He's got seven horns and seven crowns, seven heads. Actually, the number 10 is in there as well. But he's trying to look perfect, if you will. He's trying to look divine. The sea beast does the same thing. The earth beast actually just tries to look like a lamb. They're all trying to look like the image of perfection. And what John is saying is they try to be 777, but their true number, the real number of those beasts and what they represent is 666. They try to be perfect, perfect, perfect like God, but actually they're imperfect, imperfect, imperfect. They fail. And those who identify with the beast then will also receive the number 666. It's to be imperfect. It's maybe to feign perfection, to reach for self-righteousness, to make ourselves acceptable. But at the end of the day, we will only and always come to 666, no matter how hard, without the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God, we strive to be 777. So on the whole then, beloved, to sum up, we can see that to have the mark of the beast is essentially to align yourself, be allegiant to something, and here specifically the idolatrous state, that is not the true God. It is just another image of being lost. It's an image of being lost. Now, a few very brief takeaways in closing. I think the takeaway for us from this teaching in Scripture about the mark of the beast within context in Revelation 13 is fourfold. 
very briefly. First, we in the church must see that the pressure to conform in our world to ideas and ways that are not God's ways, this pressure is real and dangerous and sadly can also come from the church, dominant religious institutions. The church that looks like a lamb but speaks like a dragon. The church that abandons its calling to be a bastion and bulwark of the truth as revealed in Scripture and stay true to the canon that is Scripture. Not culture's canon, not politically correct canon, not socially acceptable canon, but Scripture, God's Word, no matter what it costs, even if it costs our lives, even if it means economic persecution for us. That's the first thing. Second, I believe this text is teaching us about the role of fear. If we fear death, if we hold too tightly to this life right here, right now, or to our possessions and to our economic placement, it will seriously corrode our ability to be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. As one has said, if we don't fear God, then we are going to be left fearing everything else. We must fear God above all. Third, we in the church must also recognize our human propensity, our inclination, our bent, if you will, to divinize, to make a God of the state, and to look to the state for our salvation, even though any of that sort of bluster from the state comes from the evil one. It's dragon-inspired. But how many times in history hasn't this happened? And how many people in the pews today are tempted to divide from other Christians due to political allegiances, and not because of theological centrals due to their hopes and aspirations for a certain leader or another to get in, as though our political allegiances trump our allegiance to the one and only Lord of all, who is Christ. We might confess Christ with our lips, but act as if it's really the state that's going to save us and our world, and that is idolatry. God will not stand for it. And so forth then, and finally, we must go back to the truth of the gospel again and again and again, back to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, where we see the lion who is a lamb standing at the center of the throne, offering his blood to deal with the deepest problems that we face, and not just the superficial ones that we have. Because our problem, according to Scripture, friends, is a corrupt heart, separation from God, and guilt before him. Our problem is that our corrupt hearts turn heaven into hell, our separation from God guarantees it, and our guilt before him leaves us no way out, except if we go and we worship the lion who is a lamb and continue to stay there in adoration and in faithful devotion. May God give us strength in our day also. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Lord, just very briefly, I pray that you would allow us to have the mark of Christ, that we would live our, out our baptismal identity in this world. This is not something that we can do on our own strength. We can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. So we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit into our hearts once again so that we may be found faithful, so that we may be found, Lord, as those who are covered by the blood of Christ and are living out of that covering. We thank you once again for all that you have done in our lives, and we ask that you would reign in us. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast.
The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.